Hello and welcome to the Toast Podcast with me, Laura Barton. For our sixth series, we've collaborated with Yorkshire Sculpture Park for wide-ranging conversations with six of Britain's most exciting sculptors. Ro Robertson's work examines the boundaries of the human body and its environment using photography, drawing, performance and, increasingly, sculpture. In 2019, they were chosen as one of Yorkshire Sculpture Park's five associate artists and paired with the Hepworth Wakefield to create a body of work titled Stone Butch. In late March, they joined me from their studio in West Cornwall to discuss this work, the rhythms and forms of landscape, queerness, fluidity and assembled sculpture. Whereabouts are you in Cornwall today, Ro? So my studio's in Red Roos, um, which is West Cornwall, not too far from St Ives. It's where the main uh, mine and heritage is in, in Red Roos. And when did you move there? Because you were living in Yorkshire for a time, weren't you? Yeah, I was in um, West Yorkshire for a good few years before I moved here. I lived in Tommerdon and then Hebden Bridge um, in Calder Valley. I moved here in 2019. And what led you there? I visited Cornwall for a number of years and I'm really, I'm following the landscape really from a practice and I started to work outside on the moors in West Yorkshire when I was an associate artist on Yorkshire Sculpture International, so that was at the summer of 2019. I started to work outside for the first time, so before that I'd lived in Manchester and my, my practice was quite performative. I would do live performances. Um, it was very studio and exhibition based and I'd never done anything sort of exploring the natural landscape. But because I'd been living in the valley for a couple of years, I wanted to kind of explore the environment that I was living in and working in more. So, yeah, I basically started to work in the natural landscape on the moors in West Yorkshire and that kind of started off a different path for my practice. And whenever I visited Cornwall, I was just absolutely inspired by the coastal landscape. There's just an energy down here. I mean, it's quite um, a cliche about the light and the the beautiful surroundings, but it did inspire me a lot more. And I just, I thought if I lived here, I know that I'm going to get, you know, that regular inspiration, that it could take my practice into into some um, generative places. And I wanted to see what, what my work would be like, basically, if I was situated down here. It's a very different landscape to West Yorkshire and the Calder Valley, isn't it? Could you describe the different landscapes? Yeah, like the Calder Valley, for anyone who, who's lived there will know that you often feel like you're living in darkness quite a lot of the time. I lived in the like the bottom of the... I lived a bit further up the valley in Tomerdon and then I lived in the bottom of the valley in Hebden Bridge. And it's quite extreme, actually. You're surrounded by quite steep hillsides. And that's the first thing I wanted to explore, actually, was the shape of the valley itself and that dramatic like contrast between light and dark and the journey of walking from the bottom of the valley up onto the tops. And the inspiration in Cornwall is, is different. It's like being able to see the horizon and the vastness of the, of the sea and the energy of the sea as well. Like when I moved to Cornwall, my introduction to working in Cornwall as an artist was, was with a short-let studio at Porthmere Studios in St Ives. So it was like the, the ultimate introduction to... Um, working as an artist in Cornwall. For anyone who doesn't know, Porthmere Studios is classed as like one of the oldest studios in the country and it's right on the on the beach, in, on Porthmere Beach in St Ives. And a good number of the studios are actually facing the sea, so I was in Studio 9, facing the sea, 
for what, what ended up being six months. And yeah, the energy of the sea has just sort of infiltrated my practice. Yeah, so different inspirations, different sort of landscapes completely. But I'm really enjoying being kind of based on the coast again, because I'm originally from Sunderland, which is a coastal city. And I felt, I did feel quite landlocked in the middle of um, Yorkshire. You talk about the seascape. I know you've explored that in packing. Could you tell us a little bit about that project? Yeah, so that work was made whilst I was at Porthmere Studios. I basically did the same as I'd, I'd been doing with my practice previously and was going out into the landscape and kind of experimenting. I usually take out with me, you know, a small amount of like materials and objects I might want to work with and then it's relatively improvised. So I chose Godrevi Point as the site that I wanted to work in. It's basically across the other side of St Ives Bay to where Porthmere Studios is. It's a rocky outcrop. It's made up of Devonian mudstone and Devonian slate. It's one of the only parts of the kind of coastal landscape where you can really climb around the rocks quite safely at low tide. And it's got really amazing tidal pools. And yeah, it's just very different to the way I was working on top of the moors before you feel very encompassed like within the um, landscape. And, and different as well because obviously working with the tides and timons of when you can kind of do things. But basically I was making drawings I do like automatic drawings based on sort of physical sensations or memory of a place. And I was doing these sort of like improvised performances. So they end up being quite short, really. It's two minute long video piece of my body within a very dramatic crack in one of the rocks. Um, as the tide's coming in, so my body's kind of like floating on the incoming tide and wearing different items of clothing that I've used in different performances, like sports socks for making these sort of appendages that were floating on the water. And I've got seaweed through these um, very shiny blue shorts that I was wearing. Yeah, and I also cast sculptures from this crack in the rocks as well. So I started a process in Yorkshire of casting um, with plaster within the natural rock formations, within cracks within rocks. And I continued that in Cornwall. So at Godrevy Point, I did this direct plaster casting technique as well. And I made, I made one half of a sculpture that went into the Hepworth Wakefield collection, which is titled Between Two Bodies. And I actually made the casts that were then used for Stone Butch, which is a public sculpture that I made last year. So I'm thinking about the landscape you left in Hebden Bridge, which I think is sandstone, and the landscape that surrounds you now in Cornwall, which I believe is granite, and how different they are. And I wonder how conscious you are of the geology of a landscape and how that informs your work and to, you know, to what extent you research the land itself in these projects. I don't start thinking of the geology in itself when I'm making the work. It's more exploring the landscape and the physicality of the landscape and the relationship between the body and um, the landscape in both the performance and the sculpture work. So I don't kind of start off with this period of research and I'm not really thinking about the different types of rock, but obviously I end up wanting to know what material I'm exploring. And with the bride stones, that's like a millstone grit. So that was like really rough textured and I started off doing very contrasty sort of like black and white photographs, just getting an idea of the physicality and pinpointing sort of the negative space between the rocks. And like I said, the slate at Godrevy Point is really different. It's kind of quite dark and 
angular at different points and the the crack that I was working in is like really dramatic. So it does influence the work, obviously, but it, it's not kind of led by the geology, if that makes sense. It's more like the energy, I think, of the, of the spaces. And yeah, it's not so much like a technical investigation. <laughs> Were you always alive to the influence of the landscape and environment in your work, or is this something that has emerged over time? I've reflected on this recently, I think simply because I'd moved from living in... I lived in Manchester, city centre, for nearly 10 years. I graduated from Manchester School of Art. And until I lived in West Yorkshire, until I started to explore around the Calder Valley, I don't feel like my work had been influenced by the environment that I was living in. It had in the sense where I was influenced by those around me and I was influenced by music and performance and like the politics of Manchester and like the artist-led scene. So I was, I was influenced by different things, but but all the spaces that I was working in were quite built up and within the studio space or within a venue or they're more like interior spaces than looking outside of myself and looking at a wider environment. And I've looked back further to sort of grow up in Sunderland and it's quite interesting because Sunderland is a coastal place and all of the things that I've explored later in life I could have explored within the landscape of Sunderland but I didn't have that connection to the place that I was living in. I mean when I grew up we lived in a tiny red brick cottage in a place called Pallion which is right near where the, the shipyards were and this housing it was made as really cheap housing for workers and miners and shipbuilders and there are these tiny little red brick spaces within quite tightly packed estates. And my memories of space and the environment was red brick, like back lanes and council estates and tightly packed areas. It wasn't, even though we lived quite close to the sea, I didn't have that relationship like with the freedom of, of the sea and what that can, that can provide. Being from quite a poor sort of like working class background, for whatever reason, there wasn't that kind of relationship with like more rural spaces also like as a queer person my relationship was that was drawn to urban spaces like the city as a place of like where you find who you are where you find your community because that's where more lgbtq people live so like the the rural unnatural landscape wasn't something that i kind of explored until i was much older I was really interested in your work packing and in what you've previously said about the rock formations you've chosen and the negative spaces between them that you cast as being fluid and how you see them as queer forms. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that. I think it was literally during that period of I set myself this project which I ended up describing as um, exploring the queer body in the landscape. I also loosely titled it at this point as Stone Butch in general. That was like a that was a, a title for what I saw as like a body of works that resulted from this period. And I think because I was looking at the context for my work, I was looking at the context for queer sculpture. And I was literally like sitting down in the Henry Moore Institute Library and, and understanding the context for, for my work as a sculptor, because that's something that I hadn't really done before. I always saw myself in the expanded field of sculpture and I worked with sound and assemblage and performance and I'd almost kind of skirted around the 
sculpture with a capital S. Sculpture for me, it can have these quite reductive associations, like symbolising one idea, and it's not something that's always spoken to me really as a as a, as a queer artist. And even kind of sitting down and you and understanding the context, you come up against a lot of artists that you don't necessarily identify with. It's you know the field of sculpture is quite has been quite male and cisgendered dominated. And I think the natural landscape and the, the, and the rocks kind of provided this alternative in a way where they naturally occur in sculptures that are these amazing free forms. I mean, literally, the Bridestones do look like it could be a giant head or set of shoulders or a torso to me and, and to a lot of other people that do have this anthropomorphic physicality. And so it was, it was just kind of getting outside of quite restrictive contexts and histories and being inspired by the landscape itself. But also I was thinking of, you know, the material of stone and how we use characteristics from nature to help almost, like, describe ourselves, our our identities, and looking at the term like stone butch and thinking about how we associate stone with a a certain hardness and, and, and also with a masculinity but how there's a sort of contradiction within how we view these materials because stone is eroded by water, which which is obviously fluid and, and can be used more to associate with sort of femininity and seen as something that's more yielding. So yeah, just looking at these major like contradictions within our understandings of material and of gendered associations. So it was just... I just found it very sort of inspiring as this free form that was changing. Obviously, if you look at a natural rock formation, it seems to be very solid and not in movement. But if you consider sort of over a very long period of time, it's changing and moving. In art and in literature and the creative fields in general, there seems to have been a move towards more fragmentary structures recently. And I know that this is something we see in your work too, not only in your range of media, but also in your interest in assembled sculpture as opposed to a single sculptural object. And I wonder what it was that appealed to you about that idea. Yeah, well, for me, there's a, there's a power in things that are fragmented and our experiences are fragmented because of oppressive sort of structures. So to find power like within that is um, really exciting to me that... To me, something doesn't have to be one single idea. It can be a set um, of ideas from, from different perspectives. And I think that is why I gravitate towards like assemblage and why my sculpture comes from this kind of background of sound as well. It was almost like it came from a place of just picking everything apart and kind of looking at things on my own terms and then putting them back together and kind of understanding how it's put together and not just kind of going with the dominant kind of understanding that you kind of given from art history. You referred to Stone Butch, and I know that that title comes from Leslie Feinberg's 1993 novel, Stone Butch Blues. Could you tell me how you first encountered that book and why it had such a profound effect on you? Yeah, it was, um, it was a novel that I'd read, I think, around the time I was at university and had obviously stuck with me. Yeah, I was trying to think back to when I first read that novel and I think, yeah, it was around the time of obviously like 
moving to Manchester, being a student, getting to grips with understanding my own history and, like I say, finding queer community. And it was just a really important novel, but I never kind of used it as source material or as, as anything that directly influenced the work until, like I say, I was thinking more about the context of queer sculpture and it just came to mind. There's these little moments in the novel that just beautiful descriptions of materiality and um, clothing worn by like butch women and women working in industry and um, just this relationship between the body, different materials and like natural forces and obviously it's a very violent journey that the main character goes on comes up against all of the violences of binary gender structure and homophobia and transphobia but it's kind of lifted the character is on a journey through their journey with gender and also journeys through different environments and it was just that relationship between sort of trying to find our true selves within our own bodies but also trying to find that environment where we feel at home and so for me it had all of these things that I was exploring and and you know it provided the context within queer history and I wanted to work with something that working kind of with public institutions and on wider platforms like working with Yorkshire Sculpture Park and then later having a public sculpture titled Stone Butch I kind of wanted to just occupy physical space with this context and kind of have a much wider conversation with like a general public. A couple of years ago you were commissioned to create a sculpture in Sunderland to honour the hundreds of women who worked in the region's shipyards but had largely been forgotten. Could you tell me about that project, how you set about researching it and whether you were surprised by the stories you encountered? Yeah, so it's, uh, the project's still ongoing because I started research in early 2020 and there's been various delays to the project. But yeah, the research I carried out in Sunderland itself, so obviously returning to um, where I'm from and finding out about... Basically, I wasn't particularly aware of women who worked in the shipyards, which is why the you know the project exists, because... We need to know about these women who are working in the shipyards and there's plenty of sculptures um, dedicated to men in industry and men in, in every other area of life. That It, it annoyed me actually when I realised that what, what, what my part of my heritage was that I didn't know about and I, I just found it really exciting learning about this women and imagining actually how, because obviously it's very turbulent, difficult, times World War Two, when women worked in the shipyards and were kind of drafted in as emergency measures. But I also imagined it probably being, for some women, a very exciting thing as well to be in this environment that they were, they were otherwise assumed that they wouldn't enjoy being in or, you know, didn't have the physicality or strength or power to work in that environment. Um, the main thing that I was trying to do was to find images of the women to work with for the um, visual sort of inspiration for the sculpture, which was something that I found quite difficult because a lot of the photographs that I was finding finding were very staged and weren't actually representative of the women in their everyday kind of work. You could find lots of images of men 
at work, but whenever it was photographs of the women, they were kind of like stood in in full makeup. Not that I've not got anything against being at work in full makeup. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't, but they were very kind of like positioned in a certain way. And every image that I was finding was like this. And I just actually just want to see what what it was like for them at work. And I found um, one image in a little magazine called We Build Ships, um, which the author, Nancy Revel, who writes fiction about the female shipbuilders, she gave to me. And it's just this incredible black and white photograph of, it's about five women in this very um, monumental steel structure at work, working together. It shows you the dynamic dynamics between the women and one of the women kind of acting as what would have been titled like the foreman, which is someone who's directing like the materials and the cranes to where the women were working. And I'd read that this was actually a role that women didn't have in the shipyards. That there's a lot there's a lot of opinions that, you know, women didn't actually have very, very skilled positions within the shipyards themselves. They did, you know, they painted and did more unskilled roles, but you can see in this image that they're actually doing every they're doing everything which is, is quite obvious. It's just this narrative, it's the narrative that we get fed. So that this one image is kind of informing the whole sculpture. That was something that was really, I felt very strongly about straight away that it had to be in steel, that it's, it's, it's in the material that the women were working with. Um, so it's welded, caught in steel sculpture and painted in ship paint that they would have been using. Sort of semi-abstract uh, figurative sculpture showing some of the main roles that women would have been working in. There are so many forgotten stories of women in industry and how they change our culture. It's not really relevant to this, but a few years ago yeah. I made a radio programme about how women working in Wigan's mining industry pioneered the wearing of trousers. No, I think it's interesting because it, that, that's another one of... The things that I read is how all the clothing was obviously made for men, so how the women would um, alter the, clo- the clothing for themselves. That's what actually something that is also going to be embedded in the sculpture is like the blues of like the heavy workwear, denim and cotton um, workwear that they would have been wearing. Yeah, getting in the kind of blues of the sea. So like the environment that they would have been working on, because it would have been working on the river side, uh, the mouth of the river close to the sea. And will the sculpture be displayed down by their docks? Yeah, right on the riverside. Since you've moved into sculpture, how does it feel for you to encounter your work in a landscape? Well, actually, my first public sculpture was last year, and that was a sculpture was exhibited for Sculpture in the City, which is right in the city of London. So, so far, I've only exhibited public sculpture in quite a built-up city environment, which was interesting in itself, because obviously the sculpture comes from a place that was informed by the natural landscape, so then the contrast within the city um, has been really interesting but I am looking forward to this year having sculpture situated in different landscapes like I say the Sutherland sculpture beside the river and hopefully some other rural settings for sculptures this year it's just fascinating to see your work in occupying you know real life situations and different environments where people are going to find your work in a completely different way whether it's you know walking or or they're going to come across it without necessarily looking for it. It's what's really interesting about public sculpture for me. It's not just your work, it's got a different context and it belongs to, well, hopefully, you know, it, it belongs to the people who are 
they're going to be experiencing it in the place that it's situated as well. Do you remember your first experience of encountering sculpture at all and how it made you feel? Yeah, it was actually on the riverside in Sunderland. There's, um, Sunderland's got a really good history of public art commissioning and the, the riverside has a whole kind of like sculpture trail. So that would have been the first, probably not just my first experience of sculpture, but my first experience of art, I think. I would have, you know, found that sculpture before I went in an art gallery. How has your relationship with Yorkshire Sculpture Park influenced your work? The work that I made in 2019, um, which is the work I explained I was making when I was working up on the mirrors, um, I made a video and I made four plaster cast sculptures. Two of the sculptures were exhibited at Yorkshire Sculpture Park, along with um, a video. And for me, it was the first time that a really wide public had seen my work and I was having these conversations with, about what could otherwise be quite a niche kind of like conversation about gender and sexuality and queer art. It's sometimes not always this wide public conversation. So I was having conversations with absolutely every type of person about my work, which I found amazing. And it actually, even though it was an indoor exhibition that we had, it sparked the idea that I wanted to do a public sculpture and I wanted to have work outdoors and that I didn't just want to make the work outside and explore the, out, the natural landscape in the process of making the work. I wanted to have public sculptures and outdoor sculptures and sometimes you just need that bit of inspiration or just, you know, plant that seed and then take it from there. So it ended up taking, you know, it took two years from that point to having a public sculpture and it's been a massive learning curve and, you know, a big journey from exhibiting indoor sculpture to outdoor sculpture. But yeah, I think the conversation's really exciting around queer artists and the natural landscape. And um, I'm in an exhibition coming up at Yorkshire Sculpture Park with four, five other queer artists who also make work in relation to the natural landscape, which is called On Queer, On Queer Ground, opening in July. So yeah, Yorkshire Sculpture Park and Yorkshire Sculpture International kind of just broadened my kind of practice and how I how I worked with with the land and how I experimented with the natural landscape. Uh, the On Queer Ground exhibition includes Whiskey Chow, who works in film and digital, um, Claire Bowler, um, Sharp, R.A. Walden and Sade Mika. So all working across like performance, film, sculpture and basically the queer body and the natural landscape. Looking at the progression of your work, you move into sculpture, you move to Cornwall, it does seem to be getting bigger, not only in physical scale, but in its ambition. Do you feel yourself at a turning point now in your career? No, I think it is a turning point, and I think it's to do with, with public sculpture and scale and you know the projects that I'm able to work on that I, I couldn't necessarily work on for the last 10 years or so, that... There's certain kind of barriers to public sculpture that's to do with all sorts of things, do space, finance, the demographic of artists that have been championed within public sculpture as well. So for me, yeah, like within the last two years, there's been a, a shift in how I work, a shift in like landscape, but also a big shift in how I can work in terms of skill. And yeah, the plan is to kind of keep working with public sculpture and seeing where that kind of takes me in terms of different sites, different places and different materials. 
Toast podcasts are presented by me, Laura Barton, and produced by Jeff Bird. Toast is a British clothing and lifestyle brand that aspires to a slower and more thoughtful way of life. To hear more episodes from this and former series, head to Toast Magazine, which can be found at www.toa.st. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe.